to Socrates in the City, Oxford Edition. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. I'm uh, thrilled so many of you could be here from at least three continents that I have counted thus far. Anyone here from Asia? So we'll keep it at three. That's fine. Uh, thank you for, for being here. Uh, this is really uh, such a treat for me. And to interview Walter Hooper, uh, who was secretary to C.S. Lewis and who uh, really has been his uh, editor, literary executor, uh, whether these terms are exactly accurate or not, the point is that he is he's the man who effectively, once you know the facts, helped put Lewis on the map post-1963. Uh, it's hard for us to believe that Lewis might have uh, slipped away into some kind of semi-oblivion, as great as his works are. It's kind of scandalous. And because Walter Hooper, as a very young man, thought it scandalous, he did everything in his power and then some to make sure that didn't happen. So uh, whether the world knows it or not, the world owes him an inestimable debt. Uh, so it's just a tremendous joy to get to speak with him uh, during these three sessions. Uh, we wanted the three sessions to look contiguous, so even though they're separated by many years, uh, we, uh, we tried to look the same. We've dyed our hair uh, in the manner of uh, 14 years ago when we did our first session, and uh, so we look reasonably similar, and it could be edited and, and fool the untrained eye. Uh, we, uh, we last met seven years ago this very night, and uh, Walter Hooper, in case you know nothing except what I have told you about him. Uh, in addition uh, to doing everything that I have just said, uh, he was uh, also uh, ordained as an Anglican priest and was the chaplain of two Oxford colleges. He served as assistant rector of the Church of St. Mary Magdalene here in Oxford, and he converted to Catholicism in 1988. We will uh, talk about that, among other things. Please give a very warm Socrates in the City welcome, Oxford edition to Mr. Walter Hooper. Wow. Well, it seems like just yesterday that we were here, and yet, unimaginably, <laughs> it's seven years ago. I remember asking you seven years ago at the end of the conversation, when shall we two meet again? And I remember distinctly you said... When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, huh. that will be ere the set of sun. All hail Macbeth. I think that's what you said. I, I don't know why. <laughs> Thane of Potter, Thane of Glams. You were saying those things. They didn't make sense to me, but I since looked them up, and I still don't understand. But uh, we met uh, seven years ago this very night, Mr. Hooper, and um, we were talking about so many things, and I thought it's been such a joy to talk to you for these long sessions, I cannot begin to tell you how grateful I am and how, uh, how much this is going to mean to so many people to get to hear you. Because you, you often speak, uh, you probably will tonight or tomorrow, uh, to small groups and you tell these stories. But there's so many who don't get to come to Oxford, who don't get to hear you tell these things. So I said, this is a crime. You have so many fans in America, particularly, but around the world. So thanks for... Uh, making yourself available for this. I know it's been a sacrifice. I wanted to ask you, yesterday we were talking about how Warney, Major Lewis, was burning things, uh, many things, significant things. 
and I know that he'd written you some letters, and I was wondering, did you bring those letters to burn here today? I did, yeah. You did, yeah, 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 I, yeah you did. Yeah. We'll, get them, we'll, we'll end things on a bang. We'll burn Warney's letters. Um, I, <laughs> it's an amazing story, and I don't know that I'll ever get over it, to get the details of how it was that he was actually burning things that we now think of as treasures. We spoke yesterday about the Dark Tower yeah. uh, and all kinds of other things. Were there poems that, that would have been burned? I think so, yes. I, I think um, he was scooping up a great many things, but some things survived because I had been... Um, C.S. Lewis had sent me to Cambridge. This is before the, the burning had sent me to Cambridge to clear up his affairs because he didn't go, he wasn't fit to go back. So this was in, in 63 when oh, you were the first 63, in yeah. July well, and no, August. And yeah, and in August he sent me over there to deal with his, you know, to sell various books. And he said, um, whatever papers you find, appropriate to your own use or else destroy and he wanted anything left in his handwriting, if I didn't want it, to be torn into small pieces. He didn't want people finding manuscripts of his. And, um, Why do you suppose that is? I'm not sure, you know, but I think he had, um, I think I had mentioned earlier, when I first got to know him, I said, what do you do with your manuscripts? And he said, well, when I write, say, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on one side, then I turn it over, then I write another book on the other side, then I destroy it. So and none then, of those survive? None of those survive. Anyway, <laughs> he, he saw my consternation. And that same morning at the kills, he picked up a piece of paper, which he'd been scribbling on, and he said, would you like to have that? <laughs> I said, yes, indeed. So um, he, he realized that what he said, you know, caused me pain. And because there were those of us who liked anything in his hand. And so when he had finished writing Letters to Malcolm, his last book, he um, lent me the copy of that and said, would you like to read it? And so I read it in front of him. In, in his way, handwriting. In his handwriting. And then he, um, he said, uh, would you like to keep it? And I thought this was a trick question because he said, one time he told me, the reason I wouldn't want to leave manuscripts around is that I wouldn't like the, for the day to come for somebody to say, I have a first edition of, say, Perilandra and somebody else to say, ah, but I have the unique manuscript. I said, do you remember that conversation? Aren't you afraid I'll do that? He said, no. But can't you just answer a straight question? Would you like to have it? And I said, I remember how Boromir coveted the ring at the end of the uh, uh, first volume of the Tolkien, and I, I remember how it destroyed him. He said, I expect I know that better than you do, but that's not the question. Why can't you just answer a straight question? Would you like to have it or not? And I said, yes, I would. He said, 
takes you a long time to make up your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, then when he sent me to Cambridge, he talked to me, he said, there's a good deal of manuscripts and things of, uh, but appropriate to your own use, you can have them. But if you don't want them, then, then destroy them. Do you, do you think it's possible that this being uh, in the middle of 1963, that he had a sense of his own impending death and that he was putting his affairs in order? Well, I think so, yes, yes. He, he knew that. This is why he had written a short note to warn him when he was in the, in the, in the hospital, when he, he C.S. Lewis, was in the hospital, um, thinking about, you know, he may not last very long. And so he suggested to warn him, one of the things you might do to try to keep the wolf from the door is to collect my letters spiritual well. Yeah. Because he was really worried about what the man would live for. Why do you think he used that French term, letters spirituelles? Because Warney was an authority on, on France. Oh. And uh, I think he occasionally used things that he would have used because that would have been a, a phrase used often in Warney's own works, yeah. I think. Where are most of these uh, handwritten documents, the Lewis documents. I'm assuming that some of them are at the Bodleian here yeah, and that yeah. some of them are at the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton, Illinois. Well, what the Wade Center has are mainly letters which they've collected and then they have a number of things given them by warning, such as his diary. Um, but these papers that were given to me by C.S. Lewis, they're all in the, in the Bodleian Library. When you first came to, uh, here to Oxford, uh, I remember a story that you went to, maybe it was the, the Bodleian, I'm guessing, and you asked for anything by Lewis, but the term you used was Lewis, you know, Lewisiana. Yes. Uh, can you, do you remember that uh, story? Um... I don't think it's exactly as I told it. Um, I may have asked for Luciana, but um, I think they, together we worked it out. I worked so long in the Bodleian, over 50 years, that, <laughs> and I was always working on Lewis, so people who work there call the, the readers by, not by their name, by the name of the person they were searching. So I call Mr. C.S. Lewis when I'm there. And I, I know a man who is um, um, Civil War and uh, Robert E. Lee <laughs> and Hitler. <laughs> Mr. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Now, what they have in the Bodleian, uh, they have a very large collection of Lewis's papers. Mm. Um, many of those papers came from the bonfire, and many came from his, his rooms in Cambridge. And but I think because of you. Them, um, that's right, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just happened to be the right man at the right time. Yeah, yeah it's just a coincidence. Any of us could yeah, have done yeah. it. Um, <laughs> well... 
But I, as I heard the story that you went in there, you marched in there and you asked for Louisiana, and I thought that the woman said, yes, cross the Atlantic and make a left. No, no, no. no. That's the joke that I heard, so yeah, I don't no, know. No, Maybe no, that's no. apocryphal. No, Who no, cares? No, no. Um, someone actually snorted in the front row. No, no. Did you hear that? That's not appropriate. No, no. So, um, okay, so you, so you had your work cut out for you uh, in, the, in the 60s, when did you have a sense that this was going to be a long-term thing and that you might stay here for many years? Was that something that you knew fairly soon? I think I did. I, I, after about a year, um, I knew it was for keeps. That it was not... Um, I was not really here just as a tourist in the longer. I was here on a mission. You fell into so many different kinds of things. There's so much to do. I know that in the latter part of the 70s, you were involved in making a documentary that most people I don't think have seen involving uh, Peter Ustinov. Um, Tell us about that. How did that come to to be? Well, as gradually as um, as time went on and Lewis became, fortunately, better known and was being read by a new audience. But I think the, um, the American evangelicals stayed absolutely true to Lewis. And they liked the new books coming out about him. They liked, so because I still felt, and it did work, if I bring out a new book, I force the publishers to bring out two of the old ones that they let go out of print. But anyway, his works found great success with American evangelicals. And it was some of those evangelicals who wanted to make a documentary film, Bob O'Donnell in West Chicago. And it was supported by and paid for by somebody else, you know. Anyway, I was hired um, to be the presenter and to write the script as well. And they really did work extremely hard. For instance, when we um, went to Lewis's home in Belfast, the people who owned it allowed us to film inside. So we filmed inside all the places that we talked about, like the Bodleian Library and Morden College. You know, they have the choir singing sometimes. So they had spent a lot of money and a lot of time it was hard for me to both write something to say and memorize it for the next day so all I was doing was just memorizing what I was, had written and, um, but I remember when we came to the end they wanted to it really was the beginning you know these things are often backwards they, they were beginning to film me just on the stage. I was I was in a place uh, just outside Belfast, and I say, behind me you can see all these ships and things. Behind me you could see nothing because it was a cloudy day. So they took me out there three or four times in one day, three or four times the next day, and I kept saying, behind me you can see. <laughs> And behind me, they could see nothing. So finally, they said, we've worked you to death, so we're going to send you home. But we we got your words, and we're going to wait for a clear day, and if we ever get a clear day, we'll film it, and we'll say 
it would be as though you sit behind me and you do see that. But there, it was wonderful to be sent home after that. You know? But I... Um, I wonder if they can put a seascape behind us. Uh, <laughs> could. In, in, if they uh, wanted to. In know? the post-editing suite. Uh, yeah. Could you do that? Uh-huh. Some tall ships? Uh, make that happen. Uh, no. We... Um, well, that documentary is, doesn't seem to me to be well-known. I've no, not seen no, it. No. I was looking for it on YouTube. I, I think that there's a, a trailer for it, short trailer. But uh, Peter Ustinov, what a great choice. Yes. Did he know of Lewis? No, I don't think he did. Um, I, didn't, I didn't meet him. They, they hired him yeah. for the voice. He doesn't appear in person. Right, right. Well, um, I hope that we can find a copy of that and get it reissued because it's just... Uh, uh, well, it was not just that. They did a, um, a second film, too, uh, with me interviewing the, the Inklings. Uh-huh. And, which, um, now, which Inklings were, were alive at that point? Well, uh, the, the Tolkien had... Um, he, was, he, he had died, but I then talked to two of his children... And, uh, one I'm, of them is still living. That's right, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here in Oxford. That's right, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, I've talked to Pauline Baines, very, very interesting. And Her illustrations have become... It's an interesting thing how that can happen, because yes, I realized mm-hmm. when we were talking yeah. seven years ago about um, the, uh, the giants in the silver yeah. chair, yeah, I yeah. immediately thought of the Pauline Baines illustrations, yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. they are... Really, so good. They're they're apt, which is better than good. They serve the text beautifully, and uh, the way she illustrated Puddleglum, it's a funny thing to think that if she hadn't illustrated Puddleglum, I'm not sure that I would know what Puddleglum looked like. Well, Lewis said this himself. He said, oftentimes I have no description of various things. She is responsible for having given form to these people like Puddleglum. That's a big deal. Yeah. But um, she herself uh, was very young when she did this. She had already done some work for Tolkien, and that's how Lewis knew about her. Anyway, he hired her to do um, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe, and she told me something very interesting about this book and what could happen to people. She didn't know anything more. She hadn't talked with, any, with Lewis about it anymore. Just illustrate the book. And she told me that when she was drawing all those pictures of Aslan being tormented by the White Witch and others, she had to rip up her paper because she kept weeping on all of that over the fate of Aslan. It just broke her heart. And so finally, she, she finished the, the, the illustrations and then sent them to Jeffrey Blass, the publishers. And she said about a week after that, still bothered by what had happened to Aslan, it suddenly broke on her. Oh, I know who he is. It's Jesus Christ. And so this is the way you get past the watchful dragons that you mentioned yesterday. You don't want a person to be told, this is Jesus Christ, I want you to see that before you begin this book. No, let it happen to you as it did to her. Mm. And then, so when she actually takes in 
what Jesus has done for humanity, then it will break upon her. This really happened in the real world, and I am one of the beneficiaries of it. Wow, I certainly not heard that. No. Now she is—is uh, is she still among us? I don't think so. No, she's not. She she died a few years ago. She was a simply wonderful friend. She she um, she put a lot into these drawings. And Lewis said, really, you know, when he won the uh, a, a prize for the last one, he said, "It's really our prize," you know. He was very generous about that, you know. It's our prize, yours as much as mine. And was that for the last battle? The last battle. What, what did that win? The mm. Newberry? The Newberry Did prize. it? I think it did. Oh, it? wow. Mm. I, hadn't, I hadn't been aware of that. That's amazing. Um, my goodness. Well, you mentioned, I guess we're going chronologically, in 1984, uh, having had a private audience with Pope John Paul II. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said that that affected you greatly and that four years later, as I mentioned earlier, you uh, became a Roman Catholic. Tell us a little bit about that, if you could. Well, it wasn't really just simply meeting the Pope, though I'm sure that played a part in it. Um, But I had felt for a long time that the the church, which Lewis... uh, was a member of, in which he supported so well. The Anglican Church. The Anglican Church. Mere Christianity, the core beliefs of it, I think were passing away from the Anglican Church. And they were, it seemed to me, settled once and for all, finally, in the Catholic Church. And um, I, I particularly wanted a more doctrinal church, I wanted to hear just sin and redemption expressed more often than you know, the ordination of women. And um, so I became a Catholic. And um, I have no backward glance. You know, I'm usually such a sentimental old man. I look back and think, you know, oh, to be that way again. But this didn't happen with me in that case. I was so happy. I wish I had been young enough to jump up and click my heels together. I couldn't. You have to do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've said uh, at, at certain points that you believe that, that Lewis, had he lived, would have uh, similarly uh, crossed the Tiber, to use yeah, that yeah. term, uh, for, for similar reasons, that he wouldn't have been able to abide the doctrinal mushiness of yeah, the Anglican yeah. Church. Yes. yes, I would say that, and I think he would. I think what he, what he believed about mere Christianity is really found totally in the Catholic Church, much more as well, mm. but at least that. See, I think he would have become a Pentecostal, no. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure of it, yeah. uh, because in 1988 I did. Yeah. So, no, it's... Uh, I'm teasing you, but it's just interesting to speculate because Lewis is so beloved by Catholics. I mean, obviously by evangelicals, uh, by so many. But it is interesting that he really has found a huge audience among Catholics. Peter Kraft, whom yes, I'm sure yes, you know, yes. and I know uh, Lewis's, uh, you know, biggest fan, so to speak, yes. and uh, promoter, and uh, Tom Howard. 
our mutual friend Tom Howard, uh, who um, says hello. Uh, but it is interesting to, to, to think of that, that there are so many... Um, and, of course, Michael Ward, uh, who was uh, with us uh, talking about Lewis. So it, there's, there's something there. I'm not sure quite what, but there's something there about Lewis uh, and Catholicism, his ability to speak to people who are uh, serious about these doctrines and these old-fashioned things like redemption and sin. Um, although... I would argue, I think, that it's converts to Catholicism because converts to Catholicism tend to be serious about these things. I think that cradle Catholics tend not to be. So, uh, except perhaps for Alice von Hildebrandt, another mutual friend. She says hello as well, but she told me to rebuke you for this relationship you have with this cat. Can you tell us about that? You, you, you do have a, a cat that plays a central role uh, in things. She's named after the saint in Narnia. She's Blessed Lucy of Narnia. And um, she um, means the world to me. Uh, but she is one of my three cats. The first cat was Urban VIII, named after one of the popes. And then when he died, I adopted his mother, Claret the Meek. Carrots, I mean, cats are not generally meek, but she really was. If the Pope was going to um, canonize cats, he should begin with her. <laughs> anyway, then, then comes Blessed Lucy of Narnia. And when I went to Narnia a few years ago to receive a relic... You have to the, explain. Yeah, that is a place called Narnia. It's in, it's in Umbria, it's 50 miles north of Rome. And this is where C.S. Lewis got the name uh, Narnia. It was from this classical atlas. And um, I've been to Narnia a number of times, and they know a lot about Lewis there. Um, they, they do. One of their, that's, that's one of their most popular saints is Blessed Lucy of Narnia, like Lucy Pevensey. Um, she was a, uh, uh, she's one of the saints of the Catholic Church, which is incorrupt. Her body is in a glass case. It's there. But yes, it is still there. But her clothes, as they said, are not incorrupt. And so the Vatican had to come up and change her Dominican habit. And so they gave a fragment of that, a relic of that, uh, to me and my godson to bring to Oxford to put in the... Um, um, Oxford Oratory. Well, by mentioning how Lewis um, came up with the name Narnia, you, re- you remind me of uh, something we touched upon last time, Th- the importance of names and words and how they're not... Let's see, how can we put this? That, that there's something more to words than just content. The connotation yes. is as important and sometimes more important than the denotation. Yes. Uh, words, sounds, summon things uh, other than just facts in our, in our brains. Uh, we know that uh, Lewis uh, came up with Aslan. Aslan is the Turkish word for lion. That's right. Many people don't know that. But it's also, it's not just that. That's a nice idea. But the idea that it's, it sounds right. What does that mean, that it sounds right? I mean, if he had named Aslan George... 
or he had named Aslan Bucky. It's just another name. But names have power. What, what do you think it is about Aslan or Narnia? Well, Aslan is a beautiful sound. It's short, it's easy to remember, but it doesn't have the familiar sounds like, of earthly names like George and Bert. Uh, you don't want a, 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 the, a, the king of the beasts to be called Bert <laughs> or, or Georgie or Bob, uh, Billy Bob. <laughs> no, Billy Bob, but, but yeah. It, it's a what beautiful kind of a thing, and most of us be? have never heard of it, but it's easy to remember Aslan, and um, it's easy to remember, I think, the other names. Well, this touches on something that our mutual friend the C.S. Lewis scholar Tom Howard has written about in his really extraordinary, uh, I think, classic book, Chance or the Dance, or as they say it here, Chance or the Dance. But in that book, he talks about something which is really being challenged, particularly now, uh, especially in America, but, but around the world. And what he talks about is God's order and how when you make a statement like, well, Billy Bob wouldn't be right, but Aslan would be right. The assumptions that we bring to that judgment are interesting. Where do we get them from? And it's uh, uh, Tom Howard would say, and I would say, that they're baked in, that, that we have an instinct for what might seem holy, what might seem noble, what might seem base, vulgar, comedic. Mm-hmm. And in his book, Tom Howard's book, Chance of the Dance, he talks about the Borzoi, as a, as a dog, that when you see it, it looks like nobility. Yeah. A lion evokes yeah. nobility. A hyena or a vulture evoke uh, death, uh, the way they skulk. Yeah. It's interesting to think that, that Lewis is onto that idea that there's something that God has put meaning into all things and that not everything is malleable. Lewis doesn't write about it so much, or maybe he does, you'll remember where, but it's in all of his fiction, this idea of embodying nobility, uh, embodying vulgarity and baseness, that, that these things are not what we say they are. There's some, they're innate qualities, that God has created a universe with these innate qualities. Of course, the idea of maleness and femaleness is being challenged today as though anyone can be anything, uh, as though there isn't even such a thing as Maleness, but the way Lewis portrays kings and queens, that they're very different in his world. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about gender or that kind of thing in his books, because it seems to be so strong, and it's maybe why some people don't want to read him these days. Well, they may not, but um, there are enough who do. But I think it was natural that he called the king of the beast. Uh, I mean, the the king of name the, the one who rules Narnia after the king of the beasts, yeah. lion. You can't have a platypus, you know. <laughs> but that's, the, I mean, the funny thing is we know that. Most people would know that. But then you, you have to say, well, then, well, why? And it's just because it's something innate that we know. Platypus, that's very good. That's a great contrast. But he also, he was very, very fond of mice. He really loved the beautiful little quadruplets. He said that if you may remember that scene in uh, That Idiot's Strength 
where after he finished, uh, Ransom had finished having his, his tea, and the crumbs fell on the floor, mm-hmm. the cake crumbs. Um, he blew a little whistle, and these mice came out and consumed them. He said, we, we want to get rid of the crumbs. The mice need food. Why not do that? And um, so, remember, it's the mice who eat the ropes off Aslan to help free him, you know, at the end. So he gives them a very noble purpose. And, of course, one of his great characters is Reaper Cheap. One of the greatest. Yeah, Reaper Cheap is is one of the greatest. We were talking with Michael Ward the other day about Reaper Cheap um, at the end of the, the Dawn Treader getting into this little coracle and rowing away nobly, beautifully up up the standing wave and into into Aslan's country. Aslan's own country. One of the most beautiful literary images in the history of literature, I think, uh, and given to a a mouse, a noble mouse named Reepicheep. Now, Reepicheep's another one. I did all these names, I could just talk for days about the names. Reepicheep. Where did he get the name Reepicheep? I think it just sounds exactly right for this, this noble and martial mouse, you know. So, I mean, he must have just come up with something that sounds exactly right, you know. Does well, because well, Reepicheep, we think of peep, you know, the way yeah, mice yeah, squeak, yeah, peep, yeah, Reepicheep. Yeah. It's a, it, it, the only person I can think of who does the same kind of thing is, of course, uh, Lewis's very dear friend, Tolkien. Yeah. Masterful. Uh, and it also has something to do with uh, the idea that both of them had a very deep sense of language and etymology. Yeah, yeah. The idea that Tolkien even invented a language that he... That, that's very interesting yeah. to me, that, that words, the roots of words were, were important to them. The names of giants, I can't remember now. Nimble, I, I don't remember the name. But yeah, the no. giants' names, they're just perfect. No, no, they're, no. They're, they're not forbidding. I, they're friendly but, giants. But I think the, the difference is they, they would have known between um, Tolkien's names and Lewis's names and Narnia. Narnia is, is really um, a supposed to be a special place where you like going. It is not as... It is not as um, as serious a place no. as, as Middle Earth. No, no. And you would, you would not find Lewis using anything that is, I mean, as powerful as Nazgul. As what? Nazgul. Nazgul. You know, the yeah. flying um, right. uh, uh, kings. You know. uh, I mean, that just sends shivers down your mind, especially in the context of the story. But Lewis is a much well, a life, I mean, a, a, a world for children, too. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, it, they're ha- more happy endings there. Yeah. Though I think one of the things that they do share in their different stories is that they, they unwind the story upwards. There are many places in The, in the Lord of the Rings where he could have ended just by subbing you know, the ring is destroyed, and that's it. And let's all, you know, they lived happily ever after. But he, you know, he knows that's not the way the world wags. So, uh, 
Frodo goes home, and, you know, with Sam Gamgee, and they find things much changed, you know. Yeah. So they have to deal with it changed, but then it's still a good ending, yeah. but not the quick ending. And Lewis is even better than anybody, I think, in that. He, he destroys in front of these children who love Narnia mm. so much, he destroys it at the end because he knows you cannot rely on anything in this world to last, not even Narnia. And so they go through the stable door into the real Narnia that lasts forever. It's, um, uh, but it's heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, yes. After reading it 50 yeah. times, I'm, my heart is broken every time. Well, that's again, just to say it over and over again, his power as a writer, the power of his imagination, it's simply without peer, no, no. in my uh, understanding, my estimation. Um, I didn't want to ask, forget to ask, uh, you must have known J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about him? He died in 73. Yes. You came here in uh, 63 and then in 64 for good. Uh, d- did you, um, uh, any memories of... of of him uh, and his uh, estimation of Lewis? Did it change at all uh, in his last years? No, I don't think so. I think um, Humphrey Carpenter is wrong, and and Ian was sort of wrong to talk about them becoming cold towards one another. I saw nothing of this at all. I mean, um, when I first met him, he invited me to see him, and he, he was living at that time... In, here in Oxford, still in Oxford. And he was using his um, garage as a, as a study. And when, he, when you went in, he said, you've got 30 minutes. And he put up one of these big alarm clocks in front of me. <laughs> and, you know, you could see here. You could hear it in the next room. It was tick, tick, tick. And so he, he said, you've got 30 minutes. And so he did most of the talking himself. And at one point, he, he was talking still. He left. The, he said, stay, stay where you are. And I, so I stayed where I was, and he came in through another door. So I missed something of what he said. But anyway, I was so worried about the clock. And tick, 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 tick. So finally, uh, he was in the middle of, of telling me something about Lewis when I said, it's half an hour. He said, sit still. I am the lord of the clock. I'll tell you when you can go. <laughs> and then when he led me to the door, he could not have been more tender. He held my arm and he said, I'm so sorry. You've lost your great friend. And I said, but you've lost the one who you knew much longer. He said, no, what makes your case much sadder than mine is you were just beginning to love him. So he said, I've had many years, but you, you ought to be pitied. Anyway, I found that after that, he could not have been nice in talking about Lewis. He, um, one time when I was editing... I showed him some of the letters I was editing from Lewis to Arthur Greaves. 1929, I, they were, um, they, he said he, to Arthur Greaves, 
that he and Tolkien stayed up till very, very late as he was reading some of the Middle Earth documents, you know. So I assume this was The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So I asked Professor Tolkien, was this The Lord of the Rings that you read? Oh, no, no, he said. You see, that I had no story had been written. I wasn't really interested in writing stories. I was interested in creating a world. Mm-hmm. And so it was the language and the genealogies and the land that I was interested, not stories. But you know what a boy Jack Lewis was. He had to have a story, and that story, The Lord of the Rings, was written to keep him quiet. Wow. (laughs) I think he meant it, too, you know, because our letters of his which bowed this out. But the very idea that the genesis Mm -hmm. of this juggernaut called the Lord of the Rings, L-O-T-R, would have begun in that way, it's it's extraordinary. And what a strange thing that someone like Tolkien, could, could be made in such a way that he would desire to create a world? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a strange thing. Most of us aren't that way, but, yeah. but that led to all these other things and to a billion-dollar industry. Uh, fa- fascinating. Um, but I, I gave him... Here's the telling thing about him. In 1971, I had finished God in the Dark, and I gave him a copy of that. And, he and that's the collect, just to that's the collection of essays. A collection of essays. God in the Dock, collection of essays. Lewis effectively defending the Christian faith. Yeah, that, that's right. Anyway, Tolkien said, "Do you know, Jack Lewis is the only friend I've ever had who's written more since he died than before." <laughs> and I said, "I know exactly what you mean, and exactly the same will happen to you." He said, no, it won't, no, it won't, because I don't have that much material, and Christopher won't know what to do. Wow, was he wrong? Mm. <laughs> he could, he was stupendously wrong about that. Had the Silmarillion know? been published before oh, no, his death? no, he, he, he really worried a lot about that, and you know, I heard him, I've got to get finished. He really worried about that, but I think he simply was just too old to get out the manuscripts uh-huh. and try to do it. But he, he loved Lewis very much, and I think he would have been appalled by what others said about this getting cold. Uh, in fact, his, his son, Father John Tolkien, told me that he, carried, he took his father up after Lewis to see Lewis right before Lewis died. A number, number of business he paid up after the kills to see him. And I said uh, to John talking, do you know what they talked about? He said, I remember they talked about Mallory's Mortdartha and whether trees ever die. <laughs> Mallory's Mortdartha, that seems just what you'd imagine they would yeah, talk yeah, about no, no. and whether trees ever Don't, die. Yeah. Uh, not in their books, they don't. Um, r- remind those of us uh, who don't know who Arthur Greaves was, because you've mentioned him a number of times. This is Lewis's boyhood friend. They met when, when they were just teenagers. They lived across the road from one another. Um, they built up uh, not only a friendship, but a correspondence, yeah. which is one of the longest of all Lewis's correspondence. 
It was a great pleasure at that time to have somebody you, you, who is absolutely on your wavelength that yeah. you can correspond with. Did, did he become Arthur Greaves a Christian? He was a Christian already. He was yeah, already. Yeah. Well, this brings me to when you mentioned, uh, when we mentioned Tolkien, uh, it's not been told often enough, um, but what happened, uh, Lewis had become somehow a reluctant believer in God, but not a believer in Jesus, not a Christian by any means, but a, but a, but a believer in some kind of God. And it was Tolkien... Uh, specifically, who on Addison's Walk behind Maudlin College right here, uh, who, who really led Lewis. Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, you see, Lewis had become a theist, but then something like a year or more later, he, one of the things that was holding him back for many years was something that happened when he was really about 10 years old, when he was reading the classics for the first time, he noticed that the editors of the classics, like Homer and the Aeneid, you know, assume that um, they assume that the beliefs of these ancient Greeks were wrong, you know, um, but that Christianity was right. Well, Lewis himself loved the old Miss Moore than he liked Christianity. And so he concluded, Christianity is just happens to be the mythology that we've been brought up in. But other mythologies are in one way more interesting, like the Norse mythology he thought more interesting than Christianity. So it was still in the belief that it was a mythology that 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 he believed that night that Tolkien and Hugo Dyson came to dine. Well, what they mainly showed him was, yes, it is a mythology like the others, but the others incomplete. They never lead anywhere. But the thing that makes this less beautiful than the other Norse mythology, Greek mythology and all that, is it's true. This is a case of myth becoming fact. And he suddenly saw that. It was a myth come true. And because it is truth, it cannot shine, you know, the way Norse mythology does or, or Greek mythology, you know, with gods and giants and all of these wonderful things. You know. and, um, but then it's true. And so it offers hope for the world. And so all of that happened that night. I mean, Tolkien really just destroyed and just turned the whole thing around for him. And so he had very great reason to be happy about that. And remember, you know, people ask me, why didn't Tolkien push hard for him to become a Catholic? Well, so he'd known him a long time. He was happy for him to become a Christian at all. Mm. And well, so, but most then, people then, don't know yeah. that what, what, a, what an idea that these two giants of 20th century literature would uh, have been walking with their third friend, Hugo Dyson, on Addison's Walk, having this conversation, because it would clearly take someone of such long-standing friendship as Tolkien, and, and, and really of... 
I mean, it goes with the friendship, but the idea that he respected him so deeply yeah, yeah. on these issues yeah. uh, that it would take someone like that to sort of tip him over. Yeah. Uh, it still took a number of days. I guess this was germinating yeah. in his yeah. mind, yeah. and then suddenly in the sidecar of Warney's motorcycle on the way to the Whipsnade Zoo, it, the penny drops, and he says, I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I don't yeah. know if it's nine days later or something, but, but the idea that it was J.R.R. Tolkien who brought it over... Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those delightful stories of history. It, it's one of, the, one of the few of all these kinds of stories that's not apocryphal. It's absolutely true. Well, I think those two men, of, of all the men I've ever known, and of all the Inklings, I think they still had... Um, they were very adult men, but they had a children's heart. They still rejoice in beautiful, real, wonderful things. I mean, uh, Christianity still excited them in a way it ceases to excite most adult converts. You mm. know? They still cared a lot. They still saw things with the eyes of a child. They could see um, the beauty. It's what you were saying about yeah, myths. Yeah, that yeah. why, I mean, uh, I guess it's in Surprised by Joy that Lewis talks about the, the, the line from Longfellow, yeah. Balder the Beautiful yeah. is dead, yeah. is dead. Yeah. And how it just touched his heart, yeah. and he felt this yearning for northernness, for something. I mean, the idea that he was in touch with those feelings, that's not some hyper materialist rationalist. That's somebody who's in touch with his feelings, with his, with his own, with his inner child, to use that cliche. Uh, and it's why I think he was able to re enchant. People with his with his stories because we we need that and if the Christian faith is just syllogisms and rational uh, uh, theological points, then it's a reduced Christian faith. And I think it's you know one of the arguments for a more sacramental, uh, incarnational, uh, liturgical understanding of uh, the Christian faith. I'm not saying specifically Catholic. But it's, to me, part of why Lewis is so multidimensional, because he can write, on the one hand, simple uh, apologetics, but then he can give us the other side, the stained glass and the beauty and the the statuary. So, um, well, I wanted, before we finish, just to to go back to Lewis's use of language uh, and how uh, he could use words and come up with words. You were, you were saying earlier that in the Narnia books, it was you know, mainly for children, so he wanted to be this delightful, wonderful world, and so he didn't create anything too horrific or forbidding or malevolent. I mean, the, the White Witch is malevolent enough, but in the Space Trilogy, he does. And there are things in that hideous strength which are chilling. There are things in... Uh, the other two books that are that are chilling, really chilling, uh, and I thought that's not often talked about. How Lewis was able to create evil, um, not to create evil, but to, but to create a, a semblance of, yeah. of evil, and his choice of names in I guess, is it Paralandra or out of the sign of planet where they see the Sorns? The that's out of the sign. Out of the sign of planet. But when he describes the Sorn and gives it the word Sorn, I've never been so frightened. I thought, it's amazing yes, mm-hmm. that he has the power, but even to invent the name Sorn, such yes, a strange, 
horrifying name. Can we guess where he got that from? I don't know. Just his imagination. Yeah. You know? Yeah, some, I guess some places do that. I mean, Fifthful Trigy as well. What's know? that? Fifthful Trigy is one of the three, um, the, the three species they are. It's uh, pronounced Fifthful Trigy? Fifthful Trigy. Now I can die because I've always no, no. wondered. <laughs> Fifthful Trigy. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Fifthful Trigy. Uh, are there any vowels in there? They make, you know, useless things. Yeah. I said, what kind of useless things would you think they would make? He said, back scratches. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis said this. So you yeah. heard Lewis pronounce the word fitful tree. Yeah, yes. Well, there you have it, the horse's yeah. mouth. That's, that's, uh, that is amazing. <laughs> and then the maleldild, I mean, the, the, well, all of that, his ability to imagine these levels of being. And there is something medieval Catholic about it, yes. this idea that it's not just us and Jesus. No, there are these intermediaries, there are angels, there are thrones and dominions. He creates that in the world, specifically of Paralandra. And it's very compelling and very beautiful. And I have to say that for me, that helps me understand and imagine my faith better. Uh, I can't think of anyone else, literally anyone, who's, who's done anything like that. Can, can you think of anyone who, well, who moves I, in I, those directions? Uh, I don't think so. I think what Lewis did is he said himself, he said, what I tried to do in the, my three uh, cosmic trilogy, the interplanetary stories, was to pull the rug out from under all of the former writers who, when they get to a foreign planet, you always find that we are the good people and everybody else on that planet are monsters. But in his case, he reversed it. We really turn out to be sort of the monsters because they are planets filled with unfallen beings. He liked the idea of trying to create an unfallen being. He knew it was very, very difficult. But, I mean... Nowhere did he work harder than the Tenedril, the lady of Perilandra, uh, to try to make her interesting but unfallen. It's, it's an uh, accomplishment you know, absolutely unparalleled in yeah, literature. Yeah, yeah, I cannot yeah. think... This is why it seems to me to say that Lewis doesn't get his due is a great understatement. Yeah. I mean, he has done some things to create... I mean, there are a number of literary images and images that he creates that are peerless. The idea of the floating islands, to do that plausibly. The idea of creating these characters, the Sorns, the Fiffle Trigger... Fiffle Trigger. Gesundheit. Uh, (laughs) Just masterful, absolutely masterful. Uh, And yet, it goes so far beyond that. he's, He's doing things that... Um, to create an unfallen world yes. and to try to pull that off in a way that doesn't make them sound boring. I mean, even Dante uh, couldn't make the Paradiso interesting or a tenth as interesting as the Inferno. Yes. It's very difficult to portray goodness yes. in a way that's interesting. Yes. The idea that Lewis could begin to pull it off you know, puts him in the first rank. Um, I've never 
heard of anything like it. And I think the world should read Paralandra, as I say, alongside the greatest works uh, in, in, in the canon. Well, he was aware that it's very hard to create good characters. And he discusses this in his preface to Paradise Lost. Why is it so difficult to create good characters? Simply because the bad characters survive in us. All we have to do to create a bad character, he said, is let loose from our own souls and bodies all the itching and our horrible thoughts that we are in us waiting, you know, just to get out. But to be, to create better characters, people who are really good, we have to be good ourselves, you know, because you can't express much goodness unless you have a very good idea of it or unless you are yourself good, you know. But anyway, Lewis himself delighted in good and he was able to create characters who really were good and interesting as well. Well, maybe as I get sanctified, I'll appreciate the Paradiso more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it is interesting that at Paradise Lost, uh, everyone says, and it becomes a hackneyed, um, kind of apocryphal, self-fulfilling half-truth, that Satan is the, is the romantic hero and the compelling figure of Paradise Lost. You hear it over and over and over again, and I think people say it because they sort of want it to be true. There's a truth there. But it shows that, that you know, Milton... Um, I don't think had the imaginative power, you know, the horsepower yeah, yeah. that Lewis had. Uh, it is much more difficult to do that. And um, we just got a few more moments. The screw tape letters. You, you said uh, in our previous session that Lewis didn't conceive of this as a book, or at least he didn't write it as a book. He wrote it as a series of letters to be published yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. It was The Guardian. Oh, The Guardian. Not the, the newspaper. Uh, uh, this was a church magazine. Ch okay. Where did this idea come from? Was it his idea? Well, he, no, he was actually in church. He writes to Warney in, in 1941 about being in church uh, uh, and heading to quarry. When there occurred to him the idea of a, of a devil writing letters about temptation and... Um, he said, what a pity that I thought of it in church. But anyway, he did. <laughs> and so once he thought of it, it just poured out. And, um, and you know, over the years, I've seen many, many people have um, written new uh, um, um, uh, screw tape letters, so to speak. And, you know, they've all been found really pretty dull. They try to be very, very up-to-date. But Lewis, in the end, when you read that, you go back to the real screw tape letters and you find that what makes them up-to-date is that they're always universal truths, mm. which he's talking about, like jealousy and um, uh, worries, you know, the sort of things like and humility... And uh, he introduces certain things which are very humorous too, mm. like the lady who came to tea, who was not a glutton in the usual sense, but a glutton of delicacy. <laughs> and uh, I remember Lewis's um, sort of sister, uh, Lady Dunbar, saying, when we saw that on stage, she said, oh, I remember the woman who came to tea, and said, oh, no, 
Oh, no, that's far too much. All I want is just a tiny wee bit of taste. No, that's far too much butter. No, it's just a little <laughs> tiny bit. And, and Maureen said she gave us more trouble than if she'd eaten six large cakes. You know? <laughs> but, I mean, he, he introduces things, you know, which amuse us, but we know are true. Yeah. You know? And, um, but the, the screw tape letters is worth its weight in gold. It's a very good book for people to start with. Yeah. I mean, that wonderful humor, but deep, deep ideas, mm-hmm. you know? I've dared to, to write some contemporary screw tape letters, which I will dare to <laughs> send you. I'll dare to, <laughs> s- I'll, I'll dare to send you. Uh, but I, I won't I, dare I, to save the truth about them. I wrote a... I'm a wimp. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a review of the Da Vinci Code yeah, no. in the voice of Screwtape. No, no, no. He loved the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I really am a wimp. I, I, I know when it's possible to say the truth, but I wouldn't want to say it to you if it hurt your feelings. It wouldn't hurt my feelings in the slightest because I'll just think you're wrong. Uh, yeah, you see, I'm not yet sanctified. So, um, uh, you know, uh, when I was thinking about writing a contemporary version of the, the screw tape letters, I was I realized that of course I can't call it screw tape or something. So I should come up with something which is maybe an homage, uh, you know, a, a, a tip of the, the yeah, hat. Yeah. But that is in the same spirit. And I was maybe deconstructing the word screw tape and trying to yeah. figure out what screw tape, why is that so outrageously apt? It's perfect. Screw tape. What is that? Well, uh, there are two, two syllables, both of which are really quite ugly to think about. Yeah. But, but you think, again, why ugly? Why do we say they're ugly? They are. But what is it about those words, there's something innate yeah. about them? Uh, and what's the name of the other, the devil, screw tape and wormwood? Aha. Aha. Well, yes. wormwood and gold. He didn't make up wormwood because that was already a word. But you just reminded me of something. I came up with this. I don't know if anyone's come up with this. As I was deconstructing wormwood and screw tape and thinking about these words, I realized that screw tape and wormwood, uh, we think of a tape worm and a wood screw. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more horrific than a tape worm, yes. you know, uh, and a wood screw that's obviously just a, a, a screw, but I thought wormwood screw tape, the idea that they could be broken apart into tapeworm, yes. that's, that's perfect Lewis, the idea that he would want you to, to on this uh, deeper atmospheric level, maybe not be thinking consciously of a tapeworm, yes. but, but screw tape, why tape? And, why, and then wormwood, the presence of the word wormwood, the worm would probably on a subconscious level that you, you'll, you'll tie it together with screw tape, worm, wood, screw tape, worm, wood. The idea that he was thinking on those levels, I just find, um, I would have to say, unique. Well, he, 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 would, um, he enjoyed, I think, when, when he was writing it, but he said afterwards, he said, he, I, he said almost by the time I got to Ben, I was almost suffocated by you know, the story itself about the devils, you know. He said, you know, I mean, it's not something you really enjoy thinking about, you know, putting everything in reverse. So what 
actually lifted his spirits was occasionally, you see, the, they talk about the enemy, that's God. And Scoot Tape, for instance, points out to Wormwood, don't be foolish, he said. We are not the ones who create pleasures. The enemy is the only one who can create a pleasure. What we do is to turn it around, twist it, so it ceases to be a pleasure. But we can't create anything good. He does that. But anyway, being put himself in the mind of a devil, he said, almost suffocated me before it was over. Mm. Oh. Yeah, he certainly didn't write a sequel. <laughs> no, no he, he did write, Scutate proposes a toast, yeah. but yeah. that was all, all he had to say about it. He wrote mm-hmm. enough about that, I think. You don't want more of that. I don't. I, know. <laughs> I have to say, I even found it hard to read Screw Tape just because it is, it, yeah, it is yeah, like that. Yeah, After yeah. about half, it becomes yeah, a little yeah. difficult. But I'm sure his publisher wished he'd written a sequel. I think so. I'm but, only guessing. But, yeah, yeah. but he knew when to stop as well as the, you know, so many children still write to him asking for more Narnian stories. And he says there are only two times you can stop something before everybody is tired of it, and the second one is after they're tired of it. Yeah. Um, um, maybe one final question or two here, but uh, do you have any sense of how he wrote? Did he write quickly? I think of something like um, The Great Divorce. The Great yeah, Divorce, yeah, we haven't yeah, spoken yeah. about that. Definitely one of his best books, Definitely. one of his shortest. Uh, spectacular classic book is that the kind of thing that he would have written over the course of a a couple of weeks or over the course of of a year any idea about that no I think more like weeks Lewis said I think this was partly how he could write so well he always wrote he knew about fountain pens and he'd used one as a young man but he didn't use those now I mean at the end of his life he didn't use he'd what? Prefer, he didn't use fountain pens. He didn't. He'd like a nib pen. You dip it in ink. Oh, and, right. And you, you dip it in, in ink, and then you write about four or five words, and then you have to dip it again. So you email the rest. Oh, that's too long. No, he said, it's important, because you have to think about what you're going to say next. And he said, always in my writing... I never wrote without whispering every word aloud because it's as important to please the ear as it is the eye. And he said, but when I write, I partly create the story as I go along because I don't know what I mean till I see what I've said. And I think that sums up what his writing skill. I don't know what I mean till I see what I've said. It makes me want to buy a nib pen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do they still sell them? Probably they not. Do in, they do in, in law courts. So I went, I, the last ones I bought in London at the law courts. At the shop. law courts in London? Yeah, because the man who, who sold them to me said, I don't uh, 
believe that I should obey any law that is signed with a biro pen. <laughs> if it's not signed with ink, I won't obey it. And I can find out which, which laws are signed by a biro, <laughs> but I don't keep them. All right. Well, <laughs> it's just been so... Uh, so wonderful to have this time with you, and we're really grateful to want to take up uh, any more of your time. But I guess just maybe can ask you, uh, as we go, what you, you've done? Uh, you've done so much over the course of now fifty years. Can that be? It's fifty years that you've been doing this. Yeah. More. How do you want to be remembered? I mean, so many people uh, are indebted to you. They'll never know you except if they watch this, or if they've had the privilege of meeting you, or. Um, but how do, how do you see yourself? That's a really un-English uh, kind of question, but I'm an American, so I can well, dare to I, ask it. You know, I, I sort of asked, you know, somebody asked the question a little bit ahead of you. A few years ago, I went to Bratislava in Slovakia to the C.S. Lewis High School. Mm. I'm thrilled to know that it was there. And... Um, these people were wonderful. They were recovering from communism. They loved C.S. Lewis's writings. And that's C.S. Lewis High School. And they've sacrificed so much, the adults as well as the children. Anyway, I stayed there for several days. And I gave some talks. But then they liked to ask questions. And the last question put to me was by a young girl of about 17, something like that. And you can try to help me understand what was her motive in asking this question. She said, how does it feel to have lived your whole life under the shadow of someone else? I said, wonderful. <laughs> I wish I could do it again and again and again. I think I've been the most fortunate man on earth, you know, without writing anything interesting myself. All I push forward is my apostolate is to push C.S. Lewis, who wrote all the things that I love. And I've been allowed to, to just keep on celebrating his works and bringing out more and more of them as I find them. So, yes. It, I've, I've lived under his shadow. What a shadow, though. I well, love that shadow. I would like to, you know? to flip it you know? and to say, I don't know that that's true. I would no. say that you've had the outrageous joy all these years of living in his light. Yeah. It's not his shadow. <laughs> it's his light. Yeah. 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 And the light of anyone else probably couldn't compare. Yeah. Uh, really extraordinary. And, of course... We know whose light he's living in, so yeah, it's all yeah, the same yeah, light yeah, if it's yeah, light. Yeah. But uh, you have uh, done such a service in uh, sharing uh, the light and reflecting the light, all of which is reflected uh, in this world. But uh, we're really grateful to you, but I'm particularly grateful to you for the time that we've had. This has been, uh, as I said earlier, a dream for me to have this time uh, to talk with you because I feel this is so important. Um, I am beyond grateful, cannot express my gratitude for, for this on so many levels. Thank you for sharing yourself so freely and tremendously generously. We 
uh, see it, we appreciate it. So folks, maybe a, a final, extremely warm round of applause. Thank you. And thank you for coming to Socrates in the City, Oxford Edition. Thank you all.